So we're continuing our journey through discipleship, that kind of heading really that uh, you could apply to any aspect of your life, our worship, our prayers, uh, our DG groups, our preaching, everything. Everything is discipleship in a sense. Uh, but we've got this uh, series going through. We're looking at some, sometimes some basic things. And one of the things we're going to look at today is the prayer-filled life of a believer, which is fairly basic. You would say that every believer should have a, a prayer-filled life. But uh, nevertheless, I'm taking a little bit of a journey, um, and uh, some of that is my journey. And just really, because we, we know we all ought to pray more. No one ever confesses they're praying too much. Um, but, um, but it's about this life of prayer and this life of intimacy with God, which he yearns for. He wants that for you. Um, you know, he, he sent his son to die for you so that you could have this relationship with him. Yet so often we try and earn our way uh, into God's favour and uh, intimacy. So I'm going to read uh, from Matthew's Gospel, and uh, it leads us into the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not really going to do a big exposition of the Lord's Prayer. We know the Lord's Prayer, but I will allude to it. Um, but uh, it really sets the scene for us uh, this morning. If you think last week... Uh, We spoke about a spirit-filled life, where we get our energy from, our passion from, our power source, this energy that's available to us, and we have to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and then the Father will give us this gift of the Holy Spirit. This week, a prayer-filled life. You know, when we're asking God uh, and knocking on the door and seeking God, we're praying to God, we're asking him. Prayer is, is communication with God, speaking to him and listening to him as well, about relationship, talking and hearing uh, to God and from God. And prayer, uh, what I want to try and get us to just briefly this morning, is to see it as such a privilege, such a privilege. It's an invitation to relationships. So why do we see it as such a chore sometimes? They talk about spiritual disciplines. Uh, I'm a big fan of spiritual disciplines. And someone once said to me, I don't think there's anything theological or Greek, Latin or Hebrew about this whatsoever, but it might be, I don't know. But it said the word discipline and disciple are very closely related in their spelling. But some people, you know, maybe prayer is a discipline, but it's only supposed to be a discipline. If it's about relationship, I don't want to talk to Andrea, my wife that is, um, I don't see it as a discipline. I need to go and spend five minutes with Andrea. uh, And I need to talk to her for five minutes and have my quiet time with Andrea. And if if I've done that, I don't go to... Um, uh, out for the day and think, well, I don't need to speak to Andrew anymore because I had my five minutes with her this morning. Uh, that's not relationship. And at the end of the day, when she says goodnight, um, I don't sort of ignore it and think, well, I did my five minutes, I did my Bible in one year with Nikki Gumbel, and I don't really need to speak to her. It's an ongoing relationship, and that's what God uh, wants for us. Yet millions, millions, literally Christians, struggle through life on their own, uh, leading desperate lives, they're kind of out of kilter with God. And sometimes the last thing they realise they need to do is to pray. Is to pray. And it's, uh, it would be, it'd be fascinating and hard to understand if we didn't know there is one who is against prayer and always finds a reason to tell us not to pray. Yet Jesus said, when you pray, not if. So this is what he says. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men. It was very much an outward demonstration of pious and holiness. Um, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard uh, because of their many words. Do not be like them, 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then, of course, some later manuscripts add, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a lovely verse at the end, isn't it? For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it follows uh, this. And uh, if that, if his is the power, the kingdom, the glory forever and ever, why wouldn't we want to be wrapped up in that? He invites us to. Why wouldn't we do it? This account that's told in Matthew is also told in Luke chapter 11. And when Jesus had been praying, Jesus is alone with his disciples. He's deep in prayer. He's having a moment of intense closeness with the Father. It must have been, if you think about it, if you were there, if you put yourself in that position, it must have been an incredible thing to witness. Jesus praying to his Father. So Jesus thought it was important, even though he's fully God, now we're seeing we're in his fully humanness. He needs to draw on the Father. It must have been fantastic to watch the concentration, the intimacy, Jesus himself recognising the power source. It's amazing. And it, it was so good that when he finishes in, in Mark's Gospel, and they've seen it, they want that same intimacy, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they've seen Jesus, he's leading by example. And they said, we, we want that. What you've got, we want. Teach us to pray. And as you read through all four Gospels, you see that prayer was massively important to Jesus. But it wasn't just for him. It wasn't just for him. He taught prayer. He encouraged prayer. He was inspiring in his closeness to the Father. So last week, talking about the Spirit-filled life, we ask, we receive. It involved prayer, talking to God, listening, seeking, knocking, asking. It was relationship. Prayer was the driving force of Jesus' life. His ministry was amazing. But there were times, and we often gloss over this, when he left his ministry for a period of time to go away and be by himself to do what? To pray. Because he knew the outpouring of his heart, the outpouring of his ministry, had, he had to, have the, it had to have the inward life. The people were after him. He said, okay, let's go away, because he had to pray. He needed that inner strength for the outer life. We, we, we often concentrate on that outer ministry. We see the demonic deliverance. We see the healings. We see people raised from the dead. But it all came out of a life of intimacy with God in prayer. He knew that he had to know the Father's will. How often do I leap into something or you leap into something? And then we say, well, God, bless my, bless my ministry or my, or, or my actions. You, know, you get on board with me rather than me getting on board with him. Yet Jesus says in John 5.19, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. So when he goes to these times of prayer, he's asking, what, what is the father going to do? Where is God going? And we need to do that. When we look around, we can all have our plans and programs. We've got to see what God is doing and jump on board with that. It was the same with the apostles. Paul was always praying for the churches in situations and for guidance. How often did he say, how I remember you in my prayers? It was important. Equally, in church history, through the ages, in groundbreaking, impacting ministries, prayer has played a significant role in bringing about the things of God. Uh, The great people, the people we read about, had uh, really deep lives of prayer. George Whitfield used to say, I sleep at 10 to rise at 4 a.m. to pray. Anyone do that? I mean, he won't even go to bed at 10, I don't know, you know. But that's what he did. 
John Wesley, two hours daily he prayed. He said, God does nothing but in answer to prayer. Martin Luther, I have so much to do. This one made me laugh. Someone said he used to pray for about two hours a day. And then when he got really busy, really, really busy, he said, today I've got to pray for three hours because I've got so much to do. What would we do? Maybe I can only manage an hour today because my, my, my day is so busy. He was realising that the day so busy, so much to do, he had to hand it over in prayer. The Clapham sect, a real uh, a group of evangelicals that wanted to change the country and, and massively into social action. William Wilberforce, uh, he did so much regards to social reform. He said, I spent so much time in prayer, discerning what God was calling him to do. William Temple replied to his critics who regarded answered prayer as no more than coincidences. You ever get told that when you've prayed for something? Oh, that's a coincidence. We hear it all the time in Alpha. We had a, we had a uh, testimony this week, just this week, uh, our last uh, session of Alpha of, of someone saying, it's amazing, we prayed for that and it happened. I couldn't believe it. What a coincidence. And the person who brought us said, no, 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 no. Let's go back and people prayed. And it was really encouraging. It encourages everybody. But William Temple said, he replied when they said it's all coincidences, he said, yes, when I pray, coincidences happen and when I don't, they don't. You ever found that? So how come we find it such a battle? When you look at the life of Christ, when you see how the apostles prayed, when you hear about those Christians who changed the world in prayer and action, how does that leave you feeling? I know how it leaves me feeling. It leaves me feeling a little bit floundering and discouraged. Why can't I be like that? But probably all of you sitting here know some answers to prayer. Probably. And if you don't, start praying, because probably you're not praying. If you pray, you will see things happen. Now, what's that bracelet people used to wear? I used to go Soul Survivor. They had about 100 of them up their arms. I couldn't read them all. It was a WWJD. Push. Pray until something happens. And keep praying. God calls us into intimacy with him. You might be floundering and discouraged, but you keep praying. However, the request of those in these passages that we're looking at, that Jesus saw in that intimacy, must be echoed in the life of Christians today, here this morning. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. If we're not praying, if we're not communicating with God, we're doing a lot in our own strength. And, you know, it just leads to burnout and disappointment. We might get so far on our own energy. But why would we not tap into the presence power of the Holy Spirit and talk to God in prayer when that is available to us? Why and how did Jesus pray? Why did Jesus have to pray anyway? He was God. We all agree that, right? That's a fundamental truth. Um, and uh, Paul may think I've not noticed him this morning, but I can see him. And uh, uh, he knew I was at Spurgeon, so I have to come out with this doctrine stuff and dogmatics and everything. So we know that Jesus was and is God. Why did he have to pray? Because when he was on this earth, he was also fully human. And in his humanness, he had to approach the Father. He led by example. Fully God, fully human. He's showing us that this is really, really important. If he had to have that relationship, then so do we. And he had that relationship through prayer and utter reliance on the Holy Spirit. We said already he did what he saw the Father doing. Where did he see that? In prayer. He was looking, and we need to look. We need to look around at Billericay and surrounding areas and see what God is doing. That's why we said at the church meeting, there are some, and you might be some of them, and I might be some of them, that says, well, there's going to be 3,000 new homes in Billericay, and uh, if we roughly think there's going to be three people in each, that's probably conservative. Uh, that's, what's that? Who's good at maths? 9,000. Just so you know, I can do it as well. 
But it's probably more. Out of those 9,000, 10% are probably churchgoers or Christians. That's 900. Where are they going to go? And what about all the rest? The 8,100 who we've not witnessed to yet. So I just see it as opportunity. I see God is doing something. And how are we going to respond? That's why we're looking at our premises. That's why we're thinking about the police station. We've got no idea where we're going to go. But we put a step forward and we ask God, and I've got you praying about it, and that's all I can ask you to do. It's all I can do. I don't know, but God does, and he asks us to put a step forward in faith. So we've got to see what the Father is doing, looking beyond the minutiae sometimes. Jesus took time early in the morning. He started a day with prayer. He went to be by himself, and he prayed for others. He prayed for himself. And the thing that strikes me when I look at the character of Jesus, he was vulnerable as well, wasn't he? He never gave in to it, but he was vulnerable. And he was scared, I think. He wasn't afraid to be scared. He wasn't afraid to be vulnerable. He wasn't afraid to be honest. Whereas sometimes we're, you know, I always say about the Christian fine on the door. You know, how are you doing? Fine. That's what we get most of the time. Fragile, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. I sort of sum that up because all of us, are not fine. Not everything is perfect. Uh, be honest. Uh, not necessarily all of you after the service. I'm a bit tired myself. Um, I'm fine. <laughs> Fragile, insecure, neurotic and emotional. Um, but didn't he show his vulnerability in the Garden of Gethsemane? Take this cup away from me. He knew what was coming. Take this cup. It was going to be incredibly difficult for him. But of course, uh, he says, but not my will, but yours. He was honest with his feelings. Are you always honest with your feelings? I'm not. I'm not. I've not been so honest with mine. I know that as a Christian I shouldn't feel angry at certain things or hurt or feel that I'm not good enough. Uh, I shouldn't be fearful. The Bible, I'm told, has 365 uh, do not fears, uh, one for each day of the year. I've never counted them. You can if you want. Tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, I should be, have a bit more faith. Sometimes I can appear faithless. As a Christian, I should have it all worked out, but I don't. So in the past, and I've learned a lesson, and I'm still learning it, but in the past, back in the day, I buried those feelings. I'm not going to tell anyone that my faith's on a bit of a wobble. I can't do that. I've got to be seen to be proper and good and lead people. I shouldn't get angry on something that I shouldn't be angry about. That's not Christian, so I'm going to hide that, and I'll tuck that away. I won't acknowledge it. I shouldn't feel that I'm not good enough because I know that Jesus died for me, so I am good enough. So that's what I've got to say. So in the past, I buried those feelings. Sometimes I still do, and and I know that you do as well. So in the past, I put on a front, maybe this protective veneer, so that people will think good of you or me. Sometimes maybe I fall into that trap as well, still now. So in the past, I studied and I read my Bible and I read books, and prayer was legalistic. And of course, I still do all those things. It's not so legalistic. But I had to be seen to be doing the right thing. So in the past, I worked harder and harder. I'd kid myself that it was trying to prove to God how much I was committed to him. I'm going to show him how much I'm committed. I'm going to do the way-ups and the alphas, and I'm going to do the visiting and the preaching, the need to be at every meeting, the need to be involved in everything. See how much I'm committed, Lord, to you. Aren't you lucky to have me? See how much I'm proving to you. When in reality, truth be told, really, it's trying to prove it to other people who are looking how much I was committed. Rather than the audience of one, I was looking at the audience of many. And it's a road to ruin. So my own self-worth 
back then is at stake. My self-esteem and value wrapped up in messages that have been passed down through the ages. Nobody is perfect. Nobody's a perfect parent apart from God. Um, no one's a perfect friend. Society certainly isn't perfect with the mixed messages it gives you. But you take all of that stuff in. I thought I had to earn things. I had to show myself to be better than the rest. I had to be the best. It was driven into me and I was a driven person. I had to achieve. I had to prove. To work yourself into exhaustion was like a badge of honour. Look how tired he is. To say I was busy meant that I was important. That's what I thought, that somehow I attained a level that others would admire when inwardly you're dying because you're putting on this act. Spiritually, you're dying, using faith and works as an excuse. And then it all becomes dull, unfulfilling, false. Behind all the outward-looking signs of success, you're left with a desperate void, lacking confidence. Somehow, I'd fallen into the trap that it said, it all depends on me and my strength and my ability. And the result was that my life with God the Father, that Jesus had paid for me, he paid for me to have that. And the utter reliance that God offers with the Holy Spirit had somehow been pushed into the background. And now my life was one of duty rather than servanthood. Peter Scrizo says, But any work for God not nourished and fed by God will eventually get contaminated by other things, such as ego, power, needing approval of and from others buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. When you work for God because of these things, your experience of the gospel falls off centre. You become human doings instead of human beings. Your experiential sense of worth and validation gradually shifts from God's unconditional love for us in Christ to our works and performance. The joy of Christ gradually disappears. Your activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. You can't give what you don't possess. Jesus understood that. He had to spend time with the Father to minister in his name afterwards in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's easy to fall into these traps, and I fell into it in the past, and sometimes I still do. And I have to come back to God in prayer and offer it all back to him. You know, we have reviews here, which are good. Um, We have good reviews. I sit down with certain people in the church, and they review everything. And I like that. It's accountability. It doesn't bother me one bit. Uh, But my first review, which was written by another minister, and it was adopted here, um, was good. It covered lots of things. This is how easy it is to fall into the trap. It had expectations. You know, what's expected of you? And it had targets. What are you supposed to be achieving? It had objectives. And the first year, I asked, there's something missing. Could we include it next year? They said, what is it? I said, I asked nothing about my spiritual life, nothing about my relationship with God, my time spent with God. It's all on performance. You see, Harry, that was written by a minister. And now it's in there, uh, thankfully. But you see how easy it is to get driven by the performance-driven culture of, of, of the world that we live in. We can't, you know, in economic terms, there's visibles and invisibles. There are invisibles in Christianity. We don't know. You don't know what seed you're sowing about for anybody. You don't know what difference you've made in life. You're just sowing seed. Sometimes they're invisible. You know, this church could double and it would be unhealthy. Or it could halve and be healthy. I don't know. Numbers are not everything. I I want the church to grow. I believe God wants the church to grow. But you can be a big, fat, unhealthy church. You can be a lean, really healthy church. All I want is what God wants. And I can only get that when we come to prayer. Luke 10, 38 to 42. You'll know this story and you'll know what I'm going to say about it. Martha and Mary. Jesus and his disciples were on their way. came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. 
She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he'd said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. She's telling God what to do now. See how it begins to happen? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. I think when you read that passage, you can see that Mary and Martha show two, represent two approaches to the Christian life. Martha is actively serving Jesus. We would say in our evangelicalism, we love service, we love hard work for God, and of course we do. And it's not, it's not saying now go away and pray and never do anything. But we've got to have the relationship with God. We love a bit of activism. I love activism. I want to see people moved by God to do things. But it can't be that's our beginning. That's the outworking of our relationship. Martha's actively serving Jesus. We, we probably admire her in our church. But she's missing Jesus. She's busy in the doing of life. Her life is filled with the shoulds and the have-tos and the duty. Her life is fragmented, it's pressured, filled with distractions. Any of this ringing a bell with any of you? We've got to pray it back. You've got to give it to God. Her duties have become disconnected from her love for Jesus. If you're doing something in the church and it's a burden, that's what's happened. If you're doing it out of servanthood and love, then great but we can fall into the trap. Martha's problem goes beyond her busyness. Her life is uncentred. She's focused too much on the doing. It's divided. And I would imagine if Martha were to sit at the feet of Jesus, like Mary did, she'd probably still be irritated and distracted and thinking of all the things that she's supposed to be doing. Her inner person is touchy, irritable and anxious. One of the surest signs of her life out of kilter is she starts telling God what he should be doing. Any of it still ringing a bell? Mary, on the other hand, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. She's being with Jesus, enjoying relationship, intimacy with him, loving him. She's attentive. She's open. She's quiet. She takes pleasure in his presence. She's engaged in what's called, or many call, something of the contemplative life. She's given time, maybe in silence, maybe listening, maybe talking. Mary isn't trying to master God. She isn't telling him what he should be doing. Her life has one centre of gravity, and that's Jesus. And doesn't the Bible say, fix your eyes on Jesus? He is the author and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes on him. It's great that we're active. I want people to be active. But it's got to, be come, out, it's got to come out of the relationship with him through prayer. She's not trying to master God. Her centre of gravity is Jesus. And I would imagine that if Mary were to help and get up and do the various things that had to be done... She wouldn't be going around telling one what a hard life she's having or she wouldn't be worried or upset. She'd be willingly serving because her inner person has slowed down enough to focus on Jesus and to centre her life on him. I'd become, in the past, I could identify and sometimes still do with Martha and I long to be more like Mary. It's great Christian activism but we must have that devotion of Mary I'd become Martha in her business and ignored Mary in her devotion. I was an activist Christian. I did loads of things. Outwardly, people responded. I knew all the do's and don'ts. I was quick to judge because I knew the word, point out the faults, and then all of a sudden, life becomes a burden. This Christian life becomes a burden, a wooden rigidity by it, rather than a spirit-led life of freedom that we all need. And then what happens? Bitterness and duty follow, resentment of demands, because I was so busy. Look at me. 
and then the attitudes follow. And I see that in others now. Maybe sometimes I still see it in myself because we fall into the trap of becoming more like Martha than Mary and we need to sit more at the feet of Jesus. We're invited and that's a real privilege. And thank God, years ago, he spoke to me over a period of time, but a gentle uh, and firm rebuke. And it went along, I typed this out, I can't remember the exact words, but I remember praying, it all came to me, is Ian, Jesus went to the cross for you so you could have what I wanted for you. You could have me, God. And you can have forgiveness, love, acceptance, reconciliation. You can have relationship. Your work, however much you do, does not earn that. It doesn't earn it, Ian. My son earned that for you. Don't neglect it. I want to know you, not just what you've done. I want you to know me and not just about me. I mean, a lot of people who know loads about Jesus, but they don't seem to spend any time with him. And it's damaging. Sometimes it still creeps in. I don't say I've got all this worked out, but I did deal with this a long time ago. But I know it creeps in. And thankfully, I've got good people around me that soon tell me. You know, recently, um, uh, I don't want to get any laughs. I may have mentioned it, but I've been ill. But when I first came back, I said to Andrew, I'll, I'll be all right to preach on Sunday. I'll be okay. And I wasn't okay. But, you know, I'm the preacher. I'm the minister. I've got to, you know, I've got to trust God and I'm going to go for it. But thankfully, I've got elders and other ministers around me. He said, there's no way you're coming. We don't even want to see you at church because it would be too much. And they told me to stay at home. You know, I can get a bit indignant when people tell me to do that. But they were right. And they protected me. Why is it all? It doesn't depend on me. God is here. He's among you. The kingdom of God is within you, the Bible says. So I must, you must, keep your life centred on God. Must keep that connectedness. Your life created for relationship. You need a prayer-filled life. And I have to make sure that I'm emotionally healthy, that I'm aware of past messages that I've taken on board and that you've taken on board. They're false messages. And I have to make sure that I've prayed them through, sat at Jesus' feet and given them to him. Because if you're not emotionally healthy, then your spiritual health will suffer. And we take on a lot of stuff in, in the past. Honesty is key. There was a Sunday evening service about six months ago, and, so, and there was a sharing time. We like our sharing time, it's good. And one person said, you know, I've been dealing with something for six months, and, um, and I think I spoke on prayer that night, and they said, it's only tonight, I've been resting with it, it's been keeping me up at night, it's only tonight that I've realised I haven't prayed about it. You know, before we judged that person, five other people got up and said exactly the same thing. have been Christians for years. It's easy to keep doing things in our own strength. We can't do it. And God moved in people that night and things got fixed. The Bible doesn't gloss over brokenness. It's not to condemn people. We're all broken. But I love the Bible where it doesn't gloss over it. You'd love it if it's just a flowery written book that everything worked out in, all right in the end. Well, it does, actually. Um, that's what Billy Graham said, wasn't it? You know, with all the, work, the concerns of the world, don't worry, I've read the last book of the Bible, we're going to be okay. But it doesn't, it doesn't water down the, the difficult stories. It doesn't gloss over the brokenness, the weaknesses and the failures. You might feel guilty, like I do sometimes, about not measuring up, not making the grade. You put your faith in your health, well, that can go. Your wealth, that can go. Your security, that can go. Your job, that can go. Your looks, they will go. Uh, Unhealthy relationships, I don't know. Unhealthy ambition, that would have been me. All the while, all these things are putting distance between you and me and God, and the distance widens. And the pressure to present an image of yourself is strong, even a spiritual image, when you're on the door and you tell me that everything is fine. Well, I know it's not, because it's not fine with me. We've all got issues. You know, we're not perfect yet. We will be one day. 
But all of us need God's grace. We forget the stories in the Bible. You might forget that David, uh, who was called a man after God's own heart, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He murders her husband. What a scandal. Now imagine if I was David. Put yourself in David's shoes. I've had enough of Martha and Mary now. Let's go into David's shoes. I would have left that bit out. If that was a record about me, I would have left that out of the Bible. Let's, you know, I'm dealt with that now. Don't put it in there. But it stays in there. He made sure it did. How did he make sure of it? Because he wrote a psalm talking about it and asking God to forgive him. I would have wanted that left out of the Bible. I wouldn't want God's name to be disgraced. David didn't. He wrote a song about it. It was sung in Israel's worship, in their services. Imagine me, if I'd committed adultery and murder and said, Joan, I've just written a new worship song. Can we practice it? Guess what I've done? God's going to be glorified. I mean, it'd be crazy. Yet they don't leave it out of the Bible. He puts it in the Bible. Psalm 51, 17, written, The sacrifices of God, these are words of David, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He brings it to people, he brings his sin to the people's attention. Paul the Apostle, 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 the hero, and the preacher to the Gentiles, Saint Paul, he wrote about God not answering his prayers and about his thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 12, he thanked God for his brokenness, reminding his readers that Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. But we don't like to show weakness. How many of us would have been so bold to admit that? The Bible doesn't use the current worldly models of spin and lies and cover-up about the flaws and weaknesses of its heroes. It's littered with them. Moses was a murderer. Hosea's wife a prostitute. Peter rebuked God. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob a liar. John Mark deserted Paul. Elijah burnt out. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Thomas doubted. Moses had a temper problem. Timothy had ulcers. And all these people send the same message and speak to us today, that every human being on earth, regardless of their gifts and strengths, have times of weakness and vulnerability, and their need can only be answered by their utter dependence on God. Come to him in prayer. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the true vine, my father is the gardener, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will become even more fruitful. You are already clean. Because of the word I've spoken to you, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. We've got to be sitting at Jesus' feet. I'm the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says at the end in verse 9. Now remain in my love. Sit at my feet. The world's messages are incorrect, lots of them. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest, rest for your souls. But we don't come to him. We try and fix all our problems ourselves. We try and put the veneer on. We're not spending the time with God in prayer. My actions are probably ten to one versus prayer. Should they be half and half? If I can only give out what I take in, that should be rebalanced. It's all about relationship in this life with God. Jesus is saying he's divine and we've got to be connected to him. We can't do anything without him. We need to remain in him. We've got to see what the Father is doing. Um, I took woodwork at school. I've told you that before. The only reason I took it was my dad was a carpenter. I love my dad. I wanted to be the same as him. Um, And that's much of what Christianity is about, isn't it, really, if you think about it. Um, But I made this stall. I was going to get it, but I only thought of this illustration yesterday. And I made this stall, and I was quite proud of it. It took me ages. I mean, my dad used to knock up at mum's kitchen over a weekend. If I had this stall, 
And, you know, they kept sanding it. I was, hey, who, hey? we didn't have electric sanders in our school. Uh, they were used in fights, so they took them away. So we had these normal ones, and it took me ages. And eventually I do this store, and I've done all the joints, and I put the cushion on, and I took it home. And, uh, and my dad was really good. And I said, look, Dad, I've made the store. He went, oh, you know, you've not sanded that right, have you? And you haven't done the joint quite right and everything else. My mum had a right go at him. Never forget it. I wasn't bothered. I knew it weren't that good. I didn't spend that much time. I didn't even like woodwork. I was only there because of him. Anyway, never got the O level. So there you go. Um, but there you go. I, I did my best. It was my offering to my dad, if that makes sense. Uh, the only reason I did it, because I saw what my father did. And when we come to the feet of Jesus, we need to see what God is doing. And as we do that, God blesses us. John 15, verse 5, you will bear much fruit. So when I look at what's going on, the new life we're seeing, four baptisms, the other baptisms we've seen, new members, alpha groups that have been supported uh, around the, the Grimes house with prayer. And it's been a really good alpha course. Baptisms, growth, the away afternoon. I've got to stop calling it away day. I get chastised. Um, but the away afternoon going into the evening, if we want to really get panicking about it. Um, <laughs> It's going to be a really good time thanking God, looking forward with God, discerning God, celebrating God. It's good to do that. Uh, The growth, everything. I don't get it perfect, nor will you, nor will all the other leaders. We're not supposed to. We're not perfect yet. And what I'll tell you about that store that I made that wasn't perfect, but I gave it to my dad and I was quite proud of it. 34 years later, they've still got it. It meant a lot to them because at least I tried. So we need to spend time in prayer, communion with God, seeking his will, listening to his voice, listen to those promptings from the Holy Spirit. Why do we think, why do I think I'm doing this life without him? Why do I think I don't need to spend time? Of course we do. Why did I fall into that trap? Why do you fall into that trap? Start doing things in your own strength. It all goes wrong eventually. We need to allow him to change us, cooperating with the Holy Spirit, the sense of God is with me always. And so uh, we know all these things. I'm just going to wrap up with some, uh, a few small tips, but when to pray, anywhere and any time. I don't talk to Andrew five minutes in the morning. Sometimes I talk to her five minutes in the morning. If I say the wrong thing, we don't talk, actually, for the rest of the day, but that's not the norm. Um, <laughs> anywhere and any time. I'll talk to Andrew in time I want. Why can't I do that with God? Why wouldn't I? Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, on everything. Sometimes alone, Matthew 6, verse 6, which we heard, go into a room and pray to your father who's unseen. I don't have to put on a show. Sometimes with others, Matthew 18, 19, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there also. I'm going to give you a recent example for me. I've got a challenge this week. I'd appreciate your prayers. I have a funeral, a very good friend of mine who died, and I don't want to take the funeral. I asked not to take the funeral, and they said, we're not going to put any pressure on you to take the funeral. We know how tough it's going to be. And then I went to visit his wife, who said that to me, and she took my hand, tears, and I said, Ian, you've got to take the funeral. I said, what happened to no pressure? Um, so I've got that this week, and I don't want to do it. And, how, and I straight away I'm thinking, well, how am I going to do it? I'm get, I get emotional even preparing it. I can't do it, Pat. I can't do it. She said, you've got to do it. I want you to do it. That's what Len would have wanted. So I started thinking what I had to do, and look how fast I leap into what the world tells me. Face up to it, Ian. You've got to be the minister. You've got to be the professional. Ignore the feelings. It was all me, me, me. That I'm going to do this in my own strength. And finally, thankfully, because you feel like I've learned the lesson, I took it to God in prayer and I told him, I told him my fears and my vulnerability, that I didn't want to do it. I was honest with him. Uh, But I'm taking the funeral and in the prayer time, it seems like an easy thing now, but in that prayer time, 
is if God says to me, you're not on your own, I send people to help you, so I'm taking Tom. And I'm writing it out word for word. And if he has to take over, then he will. And I, and I fear that he will. So we have to bring all of our vulnerability and emotions to God. It has to be intentional, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever we want to do. For me, I spend two minutes just trying to instill that presence of God in me. And then I pray about the day, I give my concerns, I give it all to him. I might read the Bible, ask him to speak to me. And then, at the, and then at the end, two minutes in silence. It's not a lot to ask, but you'd be amazed how that works. And then through the day, I ask him to speak to me in all sorts of circumstances. We pray this every day in our office when we have our devotionals, uh, that he would be in our, in our words, in our actions, to everybody we meet. I commit the day to him, but then I recognise he's with me all day long. I recognise at the end of the day he's with me. And I'll do my two-minute thing again. I just try a little time on my own, and that's that. Or you can have a pattern. You can look at the Lord's Prayer. You can pray through the Lord's Prayer that God's name's be on it, his kingdom to come. And then ask him how he's going to do that with you. Your daily needs, ask him for them. Needs, not wants. Receive and give forgiveness. Pray against temptation. Pray against evil or the axe one. This is my one as well what I do. Axe, easy to remember. If you forget it, first book after uh, the Gospels, you can remember it. Axe, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Put God in his rightful place. Adore him first. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Confess. He knows it already, but it's good to ask, uh, and uh, sorry, to confess and receive forgiveness. Thank him for everything he's doing. Supplication. Pray for others and yourself. But don't for a second think that because you pray it means no action. Once, you, once we discern God's will, even as a church or individuals, uh, we need to move forward in action. The acts of the apostles. Um, and it was someone said, pray as if it all depends on God, act if it all depends on you. And that's how I want us to be as a church, I think that's how God wants us to be, but don't act as if it all depends on you with no prayer, because then it's just about you. I've seen healings, I've seen relationships restored, I've seen churches renewed, I've seen kids, uh, sorry, parents that have told they couldn't have kids have kids. I've seen lives changed, not all the time, and I don't understand that. I've also seen great courage in suffering, I've seen great character in hardship and then I see people trying to get through life on their own who, who know about the privilege of sitting at Jesus' feet and choose not to and what a waste what a waste um, prayer's not apparent they're trying to fix things on their own and all of us in a sense and especially them but all of us in a sense need to echo those disciples words Lord teach us to pray so I'm going to pray We thank you for your words, Lord. We thank you for the examples in in the Bible that you don't gloss over. And we see people's brokenness and sinfulness, yet you restore them. And we try and work our way through lives, Lord, and sometimes we do that without really spending much time with you. And I pray that we would be a prayer-filled people leading prayer-filled lives, not out of sense of duty or discipline, out of relationship and love. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to all your people here You'd convict all of us where we need convicting. And anything we do becomes a burden and resentful and don't want to do it. It's not of you. Uh, Lord, I pray we sit at your feet and serve wholeheartedly and with joy and with a sense of servanthood and brotherhood with you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.